All right, last week, talking about doubt. Not really, though. I was thinking this last night as I was getting ready to preach. Every week is basically a sermon on doubt, right? Like, you got questions. Anybody got questions today? Things that they still don't know? Does that describe pretty much every week of your life when you come to church? Uh, and, and, you know, let alone the things that we forget. Who's forgotten some stuff that they knew about God and what his ways are, right? And so pretty much every week is a week on doubt. Uh, so this has been a dedicated three-week sermon series on doubt, but uh, we'll keep talking through the things that uh, cause us questions. We're going to start a new series next week on the book of Philippians. I'm going to walk through the book of Philippians uh, through May and most of the summer. I uh, just got go verse by verse through what Paul had to write. We're calling it the bright side. Uh, because Paul talks a lot about joy and the things that we have in the Lord despite our circumstances. So uh, looking forward to plowing through uh, Philippians with you. But let's finish up this series on doubt. Spiritual doubt is a part of life. It's just going to happen. Certainly it happens on the, on the front side of faith. Before you cross the line, if, if you're here this morning and you haven't received Jesus Christ as your Savior, I know you have questions. Like there's just some things you don't know yet and so that might be a, more of a, you know, a, a, an absence of understanding. But there's some things that you do know or at least have been introduced to and you're like, I don't get that. Now you're gonna hear about Jesus today and if you keep coming, hear about Jesus every week and it's gonna uh, prompt in you these like, really? Type questions. Now the Bible's full of these kind of interactions. One of my favorites is in Acts chapter 17. Paul is hanging out in the capital of Greece, Athens. It's known for its smart people. And so uh, he's walking through the streets there in Acts 17. He's noticing all the statues to all of the gods in the Greek pantheon, right? And he sees this one. They didn't want to leave anybody out. So just to be sure, they, they put up a statue says, that said, uh, to the unknown God. Like if we left anybody out, we're sorry, this is yours. And so Paul, uh, you know, gets to this, it's called the Oropagus. He gets to this uh, kind of think tank in ancient Greece, and he uh, is standing up there, and he's going to present his case for Jesus, and he starts with that statue. He says, hey, I noticed you had this statue to an unknown God. Can I tell you who he is? And then brilliantly, I don't have time to read it all, but he launches in uh, to Jesus and who he is and how God has sent him and, and uh, God's purpose in him. He, he finishes his speech talking about the resurrection and that's where the doubters come in. It tells us in verse 32 of Acts 17 that when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Understandably, people don't come back to life. And all of these, you know, uh, wise men of Greece were like, I'm out. I doubt it. Others well, weren't so uh, emphatic, still had questions. They said, uh, we will hear you again about this. You've intrigued my interest. Uh, but then some, it tells us in ver verse 34, were like, heard enough. I'm in. They joined him, uh, Paul, and believed among them were this guy Dionysius. That's a great name for your next child, the Oropagite. And a woman named Damaris and others uh, who were with them. Uh, in any presentation of Jesus, you're going to have doubters and receivers and people in between. It's just the nature of it. Spiritual things are tough, even for those who do trust Jesus. We started our series learning that the disciples who had uh, witnessed the resurrection of Jesus, seen him in his resurrected form, spent 40 days on and off hanging out with them, uh, got to a mountain where he was going to leave them and ascend into heaven. 
And it tells us in Matthew 28 that the 11 disciples, Judas is gone, went to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had directed them to meet him on. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. Of course they did. But then Matthew includes this line, but some of them doubted. Like if the varsity team has their issues in the very presence of Jesus, are we going to have some of ours? Yeah, we're going to have questions. It's just what it is. In fact, the Bible reports, this is kind of new information, the Bible reports that the best man ever, this is Jesus saying that uh, his cousin, John the Baptist, you can read it, Matthew 11, 11, if you don't believe me, he says he is the best among men, uh, the greatest among all mankind. Jesus, the Son of God, confers this commendation on his cousin, John the Baptist, who, just so we're clear, earlier in the chapter, had sent a messenger for him. He's in jail. He's been in prison. He's about to lose his life, unfortunately. But he's having some questions as he's kind of sitting there in his cell, and he sends one of his followers. And in chapter 11, verse 2, he says, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look to another Wasn't it John that dunked this guy and saw the dove come down out of heaven as the Holy Spirit's representation and and heard the words of the Father say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased? Wasn't John the one who had spent most of his adult life preparing the way of this this Lord? Whoa, I almost swallowed Lord. (laughs) Wasn't John the first to be faith-filled? Yeah. But did John the Baptist, the greatest among men, have his questions? He did. Are you really the one? It reminds me of the Dr. Seuss book, Are You My Mother? Right? Uh, really? Are you, or, or should we wait for someone else? Doubt affects all lives, believers and unbelievers alike. We've talked about it at great length. We, we've learned this, that doubt does not disqualify our faith. Don't think it's one or the other. Doubt and faith Two sides, same coin, parallel rails that your train runs on, right? It's a part of faith to have doubt. And God often uses doubt as a means by which to make our faith stronger. He wants us to ask questions. It's how we learn and deepen and develop in our faith. So let's finish uh, this week, this series on doubt. Let's talk about dealing with doubt today. And before I start, can I just say this? A three-week series on doubt could not begin to cover the questions that people have. I recognize that, okay? And, and I believe that the, uh, you know, the preached word has the power to help you in your questions and, and lead you to truth. I believe that fully with my heart, but I recognize most of the time when people have doubts, those things kind of get unwound in a more intimate setting, a conversation over time through prayer. And, and so I want to encourage you if you have doubts, talk about them with someone that you trust to help you in them. A more seasoned follower of Jesus Christ, talk to me or someone else on our pastoral staff. Share them with your life group leader. Wrestle with them openly. Don't let them fester inside of you to the point where they ultimately lead you away from the faith that God has given you, right? If you don't hear anything else from this three weeks together on doubt, learn that you're going to have them 
and you should talk about them. You should wrestle with them. Don't be ashamed of them. Now, if, if you're uh, someone who's helping someone through their doubts, and it's starting to affect your faith, go and get the help that you need so that you can be the help that they need. Are you with me? Let's talk about this stuff uh, beyond a sermon on a Sunday. Uh, this last series, I'm calling it the Doubt Series Hash. Follow me, not that kind. Here, my, my, uh, <laughs> my, my, my family uh, grew up, um, we had uh, limited groceries, and so we would eat Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and whatever was left over from those meals would be put in the fridge, leftovers, right? And Friday night was skillet night. And whatever was left over went into this big skillet, my mom fried it up, and we ate everything from Monday through Thursday on Friday. Now, some of you are like, really? Yeah, because you're living in a golden age, people. <laughs> you have different meals every night. But I grew up where Friday night was mom's hash. Whatever she could make, whatever was in the fridge, it went in the frying pan. Who, anybody know what I'm talking about? Some of us, maybe. So uh, just so you know, every time I preach a sermon, there's more. Usually lots more. Some of you are like, really? You go really long. I know. But there's usually lots that I don't get to say. And so this week is everything that I didn't get to say the first two weeks. A little doubt series hash. Here it comes. Uh, these are just kind of related thoughts, related thoughts around doubt. Uh, so four of them. Here we go. First one. When it comes to having doubt, can we please, as God's people, have mercy on those who doubt? Can we please do that? Now, it's a command of our scripture. I'll get to that in a second. But I'm just going to plead with you as your pastor. Can you go easy on the people who have the questions? Can you, can you have some love for the folks who don't agree with us? Jude uh, is this little itty-bitty book in your Bibles. It's right next to the last one, Revelation, right? Jude, Revelation. Just 24 verses. Or, well, there's some. I can't remember the number, but it's just a little book. Anybody know who Jude was? He, he, was, he was the brother of Jesus. So you got two brothers of Jesus writing uh, letters in your Bible. James is the brother of Jesus, and Jude is the brother of Jesus. And Jude writes this letter uh, to his uh, readers and, and basically uh, excoriates. He just uh, you know, brings to task these false teachers who were so prevalent in the first century. They were just coming in and teaching all kinds of garbage. He, he calls them all kinds of metaphorical names. And he, his basic message is, you can read it, it's stay away from these guys. Don't believe them, right? Comes out really strong against false teaching, as we should. But as he's finishing up, like so many of the writers of our Bible, he kind of just you know, pulls together some final thoughts, and, and here's what he finishes his book with in Jude chapter 1, only chapter, verse 20. Uh, it says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, you keep yourselves in the love of God. You wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Some great Christian instruction here, right? Hey, if you're going to be Christian, do it this way. He basically says, uh, you build yourselves up in your holy faith. Keep striving to deepen your faith. Pray in that regard. Pray in the spirit and, and ask him to lead you in life. Uh, guard yourselves or keep yourselves in the love of God. And wait for the mercy of the Lord. Be persevering in, in this life, knowing that there's ultimately a, a greater life, an eternal life that awaits some good comments, some good ideas about living the Christian faith. 
And so he finishes that, and he's like, oh, yeah, and one more thing. Verse 22, and have mercy on those who doubt. That's where I got this one. Let's have mercy on those who doubt. It's in your Bible. Jude says, have mercy on those who doubt. What an interesting contrast to his, like, taking to task the false teachers and anybody who goes with them. He's like, don't just write them off. Don't just do, like, like, like we, love, we love the parts of the Bible that we love, don't we? We all got the, our, this is my favorite verse. I love the verse that tells me if someone doesn't believe like I do, I can shake the dust off my feet. <laughs> love that verse. I get to be all righteous in that setting, right? I get to be all like, mm-hmm. You don't believe like I do? <laughs> but can I tell you that that verse um, implies that you've gotten your feet dirty first? That you've gone and kind of uh, jumped around in the mud, as it were, with the people who don't believe like us? There's no dust on your feet if you didn't go. So don't sit in your, your steeple, your high tower of piety and self-righteousness and look down on those mockers, those doubters, those people who don't have it right and say they're not worth my time. Go get your feet dusty. If they continue to mock you, do what Jesus says. And I don't think Jesus is saying that they're a lost cause. He's just saying, move on. Let someone else come in and get their feet dirty with that guy. Have mercy on those who doubt. Uh, Implied in this is long-haul loving. I'm learning that in ways... As uh, I wait for uh, people that I love to come around uh, to my way of thinking on Jesus. It's a long haul. If, you, if, if you're doing that, you know exactly what I'm talking about. As I wait for my own children to turn their faces back towards their Savior, I get tired. I get frustrated. I'll be honest, I want to kick some dirt. Just, ugh. But that's not the call of my life. My call is to have mercy on those who doubt. Can I encourage you to? A lot of times when God's called you to these long haul lovings of people and their doubt, he's teaching all kinds of peripheral things in the midst of that long haul, right? Like how else are we gonna learn patience except that we have to wait? How else are we gonna learn uh, unconditional love except that we get disappointed? by those that we love. Are you with me? He's working all things together for our good. So be an encourager. To those who are in doubt, stay in there for the long haul. Be an encourager to those who are weathering the doubts of others. Like this family was to me this week. Got a card in the mail. Dear Mark, just wanted to let you know that my husband and I are praying for you and Eleanor and your kids. Our hearts break for yours. We know how hard it is to watch as children reject the one thing that you hold dear. Here comes the encouraging part. We are on the other side of that struggle now and are so grateful for God's faithfulness in bringing them through their period of doubt and rebellion. So, and this is where it gets really emphatic, lots of underlines. So love them 
pray for them, and never give up hope. Thank you, sister. Appreciate that. But that's what the call of Scripture is. Don't just throw your hands up in despair and kick the dust off your feet and stay in there. Have mercy on those that doubt. All right, this one goes uh, to all of us. Except that you can't know it all. Some of you are like, oh, yes, I do. Okay. Uh, you're a problem. Anyway, uh, <laughs> but you can't know it all. You might think you do, but you don't. And the quicker you learn to accept that, the easier faith will come to you. See, doubt is rooted in, I should know this. Doubt is rooted in, I have to have an answer for this. And when you understand that God has, in his infinite wisdom, chosen not to reveal everything, so that faith is possible. Everybody gets that faith is not necessary if all is revealed. Right? If we know everything, there's nothing to believe. It's just fact. But where we don't know everything, faith and doubt come into the frame. And God has made it that way so that we're not just automatons, we're not responding to some kind of you know, line of data. We're, we have enough to choose him, we have enough to believe, but we won't know it all. The Bible says this in many ways, in many places. One of my favorites is where Moses is talking to the children of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 29, and he says this, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. He's basically referring to what were the Old Testament scriptures or the laws, uh, the oral traditions that God had given the tablets as they came down off of the, uh, you know, the mount. He's given us this, and we have this to keep. Where we don't know everything else, we have this, and this is ours forever. The psalmist says, your thoughts or ways are not my thoughts or ways, O Lord. There's tons that we don't know. I can't explain the Trinity to you. I know that God's three, but one if you put this on your test in elementary school, three equals one, you're gonna get it wrong. Teacher's gonna give you a big red X, frowny face, right? But that's what we have in our scriptures, that God is Father, Son, and Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal, three in one. I don't get it, I believe it, and by faith, choose it. In the same way that by faith, I choose to believe that God created something out of nothing. And I've read the books and had the arguments with my friends who uh, demand to be able to scientifically uh, discern everything about our origin and everything that has come since. And we've come up with this theory of evolution and I'm not saying that there aren't plausible ideas or, or things that we have to consider in those, those, idea, those understandings. But here's what I always say to an evolutionist. I say, all right, let's go back to the beginning. I know you can explain to me through your theory how things came from things. How did something come from nothing? We don't have that one. Something from nothing. In science, everything comes from something. But with God, something comes from nothing. I don't get it, but I believe it. I gotta accept that I'm not gonna know everything. And when I lack the answers, I need to lean on what God provides to get through the unknowns. 
For me, I lean on his promises. Scripture has given us many. God has revealed himself to us through his word. And in there, he promises certain things that help me get through the stuff I don't get. He promises in Deuteronomy again that uh, it is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. Uh, This is quoted in Hebrews 13.5. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear and be dismayed, therefore. God is with us. It's a promise of God. And where I don't understand, I trust that God does. And he's with me and I'll go with him in the things of the unknown. Another one of my favorite promises, we'll get to it in a couple weeks as we study Philippians, is the one that Paul writes in that first chapter. It's the promise that God finishes what he starts. He says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I'm, it, it's basically this, this affirmation from God to me through Paul that he is working behind the scenes where I can't see it. Like, to me, what seems like utter failure and, and absolutely impossible in life, God looks at it and he's like, hey, I'm way down here, Mark. I'm, I'm way ahead of you into the future knowing what's going to happen where you don't. And you can trust me and believe that all things are in my power, in my sovereign control. And I'm bringing everything that I start to completion. You may not see it, but I got you. I'm with you. I'm for you, not against you. The promises, that's what I lean on when I get to the unknown. I also lean on his previouses. I just made up a word there. I get that. But I look back over my life's record, and I'm like, oh, God. Oh, there's another one, God. I mean, we can kind of discount all this other stuff. It's like, oh, it's just life. But this is a God moment. This is a God moment. This is a God moment. Can't explain it except that God did it. I know my good looks might uh, throw this off a little bit for you. Uh, But I had a pretty devastating car accident when I was a freshman in high school, put my face through a windshield. Probably shouldn't be here. It was one of those accidents. Uh, Without going into a lot of uh, gory detail, uh, I woke up after uh, being taken to the hospital and rushed into emergency surgery for this part of my head um, to a doctor who was asking me to open my right eye. It was pretty puffy, uh, but I managed to just kind of crack my eyelid a little bit, and he said, follow my finger. And, uh, and I did with my right eye. And, and my doctor did a little jig in, in that uh, operating room, that, that uh, you know, recovery room. And uh, he, he, I heard him explaining to my mother at the time um, that he was pretty sure I'd lost the sight in my right eye. Uh, he went on to explain, uh, when your son got here, uh, his entire eyelid had been lacerated, like it was a puzzle. And the skin bits, this is kind of gross, sorry, enjoy your lunch. But uh, um, I, I basically had to put your son's eyelid back together with micro sutures under a microscope so that he had something to cover his eyeball. Uh, and I was pretty sure that because the lid, which rests on your eyeball, feel it right now, you'll, you'll see it's right there, uh, which had been cut up and lacerated, uh, would have uh, you know, done the same kind of damage to his, his eye. I didn't expect him to be able to see out of his right eye. Uh, but I can see you, not as well as I used to. I have glasses now, but I can see you out of my right eye. Uh, and that's just a miracle. 
It's just not something that medically or physically should happen. Yeah, yeah. So I'm 15 years old. I grew up in a pastor's house, and I had this kind of tacit, you know, faith in Jesus. I was kind of forming. And like maybe some of you who are younger here are kind of like, eh, you know, it's what my parents believe. Um, but this is one of the first times that I remember thinking, there is a God. A little bit later, uh, my mom had left. It was just me. She left the TV on, and back then you didn't have remotes, you know, to bet you could, you know, so I'm just sitting there watching whatever church service was on. And, uh, and the singer gets up to sing. I think it was the Crystal Cathedral on TV that morning. And uh, Robert Schuller. And uh, she sang, the, His Eye is on the Sparrow. Right? And I know he watches me. And I vividly remember that because it's one of the first times in this man's life that me and God had something that was just us. And so when I come to things, I remember moments like that, that God is able, that God has delivered previously. He's for me and not against me, and I've seen it. I have proof of it. And those are the things that get me through what I don't understand. So the first thing, let's have mercy on those who doubt. Everybody with me? Second thing, let's accept the things that we don't understand. We're not going to know it all. Third thing, keep the main things the main things. So much of doubt involves things that just don't matter. Like we get all fussed out about details that don't necessarily rock the foundations of our faith. But because we're wrapped up in these details, uh, it goes baby in bathwater. We're like, I don't understand this, so all of this must be wrong, and here it all goes. Keep main things, main things. You're gonna have doubts. Ask your questions, seek the answers, but stand firm on the foundational truths of Scripture. Paul writes to his friends in Corinth, in his first letter, he opens the letter saying, when I came to you, I didn't come with like a silver tongue. I came to you just preaching Christ crucified. I had one simple message, that God sent his son, he died, rose again, and it's through faith in him that we can have life with God. He said, I kept it simple. And he finishes his letter to the Corinthians saying, yeah, let's just focus on these things. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance. This is what matters most. These are the foundations of our faith. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. The prophecies of the Old Testament predicted what Jesus did for us. So there's a unification, a unity in what our scriptures tell us. Everything before Jesus pointed to him, everything after Jesus points back to him. He died according to the scriptures. And then he, uh, on the third day, he was raised, or that he was buried, excuse me, verse four, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the 12, and he goes on and describes that he appeared to hundreds at a time. But this is the foundation of our faith, Christ crucified, resurrected. This is what we hold, even as we have questions about the things uh, that are on the periphery, Talk about keeping the majors the majors and letting the minors be the minors. We major in the majors, we minor in the minors. I was on a golf trip this past week, had a great time with nine of the guys from our church. Now we joined some other men up in the uh, northeastern part of Alabama, Guntersville. And uh, we all hung out in this one house. Every morning on a golf trip, I'm just letting you know right now, I'm making two peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. I call them peanut birdie and jelly sandwiches. 
and uh, I eat those on the course. I don't eat peanut butter and jelly for the rest of the year. It's just on these trips. And, and here's a, just so everybody can understand, here's a proper peanut butter and jelly sandwich. This is how it should be. Petridge Farm honey wheat bread. Creamy peanut butter. All you wackos who like the crunchy peanut butter, stay away from my sandwich. Just get a jar of planters and eat them on the side, right? I don't want your crunch messing up my sandwich. Creamy peanut butter. Smucker's strawberry jelly. If you bring a jar of grape jelly to my peanut butter and jelly sandwich, we're going to throw. We're going to throw, throw hands. It's good. No, that's, that's too strong. But this is, this is my version of the peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Honey wheat bread, creamy peanut butter, Smucker's strawberry jelly. Ratios. Two parts jelly, one part peanut butter. Don't mess it up. It's a jelly and peanut butter sandwich. I want the goo flowing out of it in the, in the Ziploc bag. I want to be able to stick my finger in there and get a little dessert when I'm done. Are you with me? So I'm making these sandwiches. And everybody on our trip, we had all these great guys on our trip, but they were all wrong. Well, you know what I like. I don't care, right? That, uh, <laughs> and they'd tell me, how oh, crunchy, or, yeah, yeah, you know. And I'd just be like, no, okay. And I bring this up because this is the church. The church gets all fussed out about the, the details, the peripheries. When the bottom line of our faith is peanut butter, jelly, and bread. Christ crucified, risen, and coming again. This is our faith, right? You can disagree with me on how you dunk people or sprinkle people. You can disagree with me on what women should do on a stage or not on a stage. You can disagree with me about what sign gifts should be included in the church and all that stuff. We can disagree on all that stuff. Those are minors. And we don't divide over those things. And we certainly don't let doubt over those things pull us away from the fundamentals of our faith. We are a peanut butter and jelly faith. A German philosopher, theologian, wrote it this way. I can't say his last name, starts with an M. But he said, in essentials, unity. We agree on the foundational pieces of our faith. In the non-essentials, liberty. We're not going to divide over the things. And we're certainly not going to lose the foundations of our faith because of the non-essentials. And then as Christians in all things, charity. Have mercy on those who doubt, who disagree, who are wrestling through their questions. Now, don't hear me say that we don't need to have proper theology. Some of you are like, Mark just threw everything out the window. No, I believe there's right ways to do things. But I believe what matters most is Christ and him crucified. So... Let's have mercy on those who doubt. Let's keep the main things, the main things. Let's accept that we won't know it all. And the last thing is this. Let's go, let go of what's true and hold on to what is. There's this uh, movement in the uh, modern church. It's not new. They, they come up with a phrase for it. It's called deconstructing the faith. It's, it's potentially dangerous. Let me be you know, first to say that. People are uh, dis disillusioned or, uh, you know, they've, they've lost their love for uh, the, the traditions of the faith or the experiences that they've had in church. And so they've sought to kind of deconstruct things, which uh, I'm fine. Like I'd call it discerning the faith. 
Like really, you know, honing in on the things that matter. And it, it, it's, it's something that we've had to do uh, since Jesus came to the earth. Jesus comes to the earth to a Jewish culture uh, that has, uh, because of its rabbi's teachings, uh, kind of missed the, 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 the real crux of what God has for us as his people. He spends an entire sermon in Matthew's uh, chapters 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, basically righting the wrongs. He, he starts over and over again with this phrase, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And, and so he takes this idea, an incorrect one, like uh, this one in Matthew 5, uh, verse 43. It says, you've heard it, uh, that it was said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Some rabbi had read in the Old Testament scriptures that we're supposed to love our neighbor, but they had inferred, oh, that means we get to hate our enemies. I mean, that sounds right, right? If we love our neighbors, we hate our enemies. Let's go. And so this was a prevailing uh, thought in the Jewish culture that Jesus was teaching. And he's like, no, that's not what this is. He says, I say to you, love your enemies. Everybody hear me on that one? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. You see, the aim of all of the things that God has for us is to be like him in character and in choice. He says, if you want to be the sons and daughters of God to reflect his image as you were meant to, you'll love your enemies. Why? Because that's what God does. He makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So, as we're going through life and wrestling with questions, there's some of them that are going to be good. Should I really think this? I mean, I've always, I, I, I talk all the time about coming out of an angry Baptist culture and I kind of did. It was all about rules and legalism. And it wasn't until I was in my mid-20s and the pastor at a church that I understood, I think, for the first time what grace was really about. God loved me even if my hair wasn't short. And, and these were things that I had to you know, wrestle with and discard as I formed my beliefs and faith. There's some doubts and questions that should be asked. And we should lean into those things and let go of the stuff that's not true as we try to hold on to what is. But let me finish our time together and wrap up this hash by saying this. There's two types of doubters. There's two types of doubters in the world. There's willful doubters and there's woeful doubters. Now, willful doubters are tough. Because here's the deal. The Bible teaches that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Do we all believe that, Right? And so every one of us has this little funk in us called sin, and we want what we want. Sin makes us that way. We want what we want more than God and what he wants. And so a lot of times, doubt arises, not because we actually have doubts, but because the sin nature in us wants to go our way, and therefore to justify our way, we have to come up with these questions about God and be able to prove that he is not good or he is uh, you know, not trustable, and, and so I'm going to go this way. But really behind these doubts is this will to sin. And, and if that's you, and it is a lot of us, here's my prayer for you guys. I pray you find your trough. Anybody ever familiar with the story of the prodigal son? He had formed his worldview. It, it, uh, it basically said this, I don't need my father. I don't need what he has to give me. And so I'm going to take whatever he's got and I'm going to go and use it for myself. Familiar with the story? And he spends it all on his life, and it ends up being nothing, and it's not until he's eating pea pods from a pig trough that this Jewish boy says, wait a minute, 
I missed something along the way. If your doubts arise from your willful desire to do what you want over what God wants, you're a tough tough nut to crack. And it's probably going to take a two-by-four to get you to the point where you realize you're not right. God is. And I'm praying that for you. That's the willful doubter. Now, there's a woeful doubter. The woeful doubter is someone who desires to have faith in God and earnestly wants to follow him, but has legitimate beef, questions as to whether he's trustable, difficulties in figuring him out. It's like the, the dad of the, the boy who uh, you know, had been suffering from a, a demon that had uh, possessed him. He would throw him into fires and into water and uh, you know, give him like uh, epileptic type spasms his whole life. And his father comes to Jesus and says, I know you're a healer. And he, he says this to him in uh, Matt, or Mark, excuse me, chapter uh, nine. He says, but if you can do anything, he's, this is the dad talking to Jesus, have compassion on us and help us. Everybody see his phrasing? If. If you can do anything. Jesus picks up on that in the next verse and he says to him, if you can. Bro, I don't know who you think you're talking to. But all things are possible for one who believes. You remember what the dad said next? He said the phrase that I pray all of us learn and learn to utter in our lives. It's this one. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. I choose to believe. But I'm going to struggle with doubt. I'm going to have my questions. Help me with my unbelief. It's the Christ life. We believe. But man, it's going to be hard sometimes, isn't it? Help me. Help me, Jesus, with my unbelief. So I forgot my headphones on this trip. I bought these brand new noise canceling uh, Bose headphones for Christmas. It was my Christmas gift to me. And uh, they're great. I take them on planes. Anybody have a pair of these things? They're awesome. You can't hear the engines. You can only hear whatever you're listening to. And so I bring them with me in my backpack on every trip I'm on. And, uh, and they're not with me right now. I forgot them. I was staying at a friend's house in Atlanta on Friday night, and of course I was repacking my backpack, and I did what some of us do on the regular. Hi, how's it going? I put them on the shelf, and I rearranged and forgot to put them back in. And so I'm in the airport. Who's done this? And I go to grab my headphones, and they're not there. It's not like the worst. It's like, oh. But fortunately, I remembered exactly where I put them, right? And so I text my buddy who I'd stayed with. I said, hey, man, I pulled a mark. That's what I call it. And uh, I left my headphones in your guest room. Can you please send them to me? He's like, sure, thanks for a great week, blah, 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 blah. So I go out, you know, through the rest of the morning, we board the plane, and uh, I'm sitting in the plane, I'm like, oh, Brad doesn't have my address. And so I get on my phone again, and I was like, hey, bro, no rush, just when you ever get ready to send that thing, here's my address. And I typed out, uh, you know, my address, this Cindy Lane, and then I put, just like you do when you write yours, right, Brandon, Florida. If we wanted to represent that on a picture, it would look like this. Brandon, that little dot there, kind of, in the state of Florida, right? And I thought to myself, this is kind of what God wants us to do when it comes to our doubts. We're always going to live in doubt. 
That's our city. But this city called Doubt, for us who follow Jesus, should be situated in a land called faith. Doubt in faith. It's okay to doubt. It's part of leading to life in faith. But make sure it's the city, not the state. Have your doubts. Wrestle with them as you continue to pursue Jesus in faith. Can I pray for us this morning? God, your grace to us is sufficient. Thanks for your love through Jesus. Thanks for revealing what you've revealed to us. God, this this area of doubt is massive. It touches all kinds of issues and questions. And uh, God, we just need your help to find faith, pursue faith in our own personal lives, to be uh, brothers and sisters to those who are wrestling with their questions. Uh, give us uh, mercy for those who doubt. Help us to accept what we can't change. Father God, would you please help us to Set aside what isn't true and cling to what is and always keep the main things the main things. So that as we uh, wrestle with what will invariably arise, these questions and doubts, we can cling to you in the midst of them. We thank you, Jesus. And it's in Jesus' names we pray. Everybody said amen.